BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by co-site experts, Lucas Johnson and Christopher Klein. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Sixer Sense Podcast. I'm Lucas, Chris. Uh, Chris is here as well, uh, co-hosting. I got Uriah. And uh, we have a, another special guest tonight. It's a recurring guest, our probably most frequent guest of all, Jonathan Guy, one of our contributors. Jonathan, how are you doing tonight, bud? Doing well, besides that loss, but uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. How about you guys? I'm doing well, doing well. A bit of a busy week, but but no complaints. Yeah, I got nothing to complain about either. Um, Uriah, you got anything going on, man? No, just like Jonathan said, that Bucks loss was pretty rough, but we're still at the top. That lead's slipping, though. I'm a little worried. Yeah, we'll just jump right in and talk about the Bucks game. Uh, we're recording right afterwards the final score was 124 to 117 in milwaukee's favor that is a pretty misleading score as far as misleading scores go it was not that close for pretty much any of the game until the fourth quarter in garbage time um milwaukee got off on like a 10-0 run to start the game and just never took their foot off the pedal i believe they started the game like 11 of 11 from the floor or 10 of 10 just a remarkable shooting night from them. Philly never really stood a chance. Uh, we'll go to you first, John. What were some of your big takeaways? Yeah, well, first, I mean, like you said, the Bucks couldn't miss. They I, they were shooting incredibly the whole game, but in the first uh, first half, I think they were like 62% from three, almost 70% from the field. They were shooting lights out. And, I mean, it was definitely partially the Sixers' defense, but they couldn't miss anything. Uh, and the other big takeaway I took – or that I noticed from the game was Embiid only had three rebounds. He clearly looked gassed. I mean, I, he didn't play any in the fourth quarter. They, he definitely was tired tonight, and it showed, and and that's kind of tough. Yeah, uh, th- those are some solid takeaways, Jonathan. I would have to agree with the fact that the, not just Embiid, but the team as a whole was gassed. Uh, th- this is the second game of a back-to-back close game, you know, against the Suns, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but – you know, overall, the team looked gassed. I mean, like you said, the Bucks for the game, they shot 50%, 20 of 40 from three-point line. I guess if you want to take some consolations, uh, positives-wise, uh, Shake Milton had a pretty good game, 20 points after hitting that slump recently. He bounced back. Tyrese Maxey went two of four from the three-point line, guys. I mean, 
I don't know how much more you could ask for Maxi in terms of, you know, his overall shooting wasn't great, but his three-point shooting is good, and that's a good step in the right direction for him. Interesting that George Hill got the start, didn't, didn't attempt a three, which is surprising for him, but he had six points and four rebounds. We saw a little bit of point uh, Harris with that starting five. He had six assists, 18 points on eight of uh, 16 shooting. The other thing that I would like to point out here, and this is more of a schematical issue that I had defensively, um, stretch bigs in this game really hurt the Sixers. Lopez and Bobby Portis went off. They combined a, a crazy nine of 12 from the three-point line. And they had a total, they combined, Portis had 23 points, Lopez had 16. The Sixers can't win if they let those type of guys go off against the, with the Bucks, Because they, I mean, Holiday had a, like so-so game shooting wise, but like Giannis and Middleton had, uh, what was it, like 51 points combined. And then you get Bobby Portis and... Lopez having 39 points that's that's not gonna that's not winning basketball I understand that you have to keep your center back in Joel and Dwight because especially Dwight he's not a perimeter defender but at the same time when you have stretch bigs like that that's going to cause issues you can't have the drop back a scheme against this Bucks you have to adjust and maybe Doc Rivers just was wasn't showing his hand because he knows that this could be a potential playoff matchup or it could just be the fact that, you know, the guys were tired and he didn't really want to push them that much. I don't know. But we have to figure out how to defend stretch bigs. This isn't the first time that this has been a problem for the Sixers this season, but it was grotesquely out of proportion this game. So those were my takeaways. Yeah, Lucas, real quick there. Uh, Embiid switched onto Giannis early in the first quarter after Lopez hit like three or four threes in a row. And I think that, he noticed it, so if Doc didn't, I mean, Embiid noticed it, and hopefully it's not a, a weakness that can get exploited, but that was clearly on display, so I agree with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, and uh, to be honest, Joel should have been guarding him from the tip because Joel Embiid, I, I, I've been saying this for a couple of years now, Joel Embiid is the best player to defend Giannis in the NBA. He has the lateral quickness to guard him off the dribble, and he has the strength to, that Giannis can't just bully him inside the post. And we saw that with that fantastic block. That was a, that was a, that, that was an MVP, uh, you know, highlight reel block that he had on Giannis. I love that block, but that just proves to me that Joel Embiid is one of the best players that you can have guarding Giannis, and he should have been doing it the whole game. But maybe he was tired, like uh, Chris pointed out. Maybe he was just tired and gassed. Or was that you, Jonathan? Um, I think it was you, Jonathan. But my point is, is yeah, during a playoff series, Joel is guarding Giannis, and you live with Tobias guarding Brooke Lopez. I th- you have to, because if you, you can you if you can slow down Giannis, you make Brooke Lopez meet, beat you four games, four games in a row. You live with that. I don't think Brooke Lopez can do that for four straight four out of seven games. So that's what you got to do moving forward. Yeah, I think good points on on both your parts. Um, I I mean, I do think some of the shooting is fluky. Like, Bobby Portis isn't going to score 23 every night. Granted, he has kind of torched the Sixers pretty consistently in the past, so maybe it is a Bobby Portis problem. But 
I, I do think Embiid was definitely tired, as was the whole team. It's tough to play the second night of a back-to-back. Two very physical games as well, which did not help Philly tonight. Um, you know, the help defense was just all over the place. Milwaukee was back-cutting and getting open threes all over the place. It, it was really just a sloppy effort from Philly. They really weren't in the game, and it, it just slipped away pretty quickly. But to your Embiid point, Lucas, I do think part of not putting him on Giannis right away is probably to conserve energy to see if he can get away with it. Clearly they didn't, but at the end of the day, I think this is a pretty understandable loss. They have a game off before playing Milwaukee again on Saturday. We'll see how that game goes. It's probably going to be a pretty important game with Brooklyn right on Philly in the standings and Milwaukee getting pretty close themselves. We've all talked about the importance of the number one seed, so we'll, we'll I think that'll be an especially interesting matchup after how tonight went. But we're going to move on now and talk about the Suns game on Wednesday. Another loss, 116-113, to 113, the final score in that one. We'll go to you, Jonathan. Some of your big takeaways. What did you learn from that game? I mean, Embiid just showed that he was dominant and unstoppable. That's kind of stuff we already know. But we started to see more doubles. We've seen a couple teams throw double teams at Joel throughout the throughout the season, but uh, Golden State, the game before Phoenix, and then Phoenix as well, they put a lot more double teams on Embiid. He did well passing out of it and uh, and getting to the hoop, getting some fouls drawn on uh, the defense. But I think that that's going to keep coming. So that was something that I was watching throughout the game. Also, I think Danny Green, he didn't have a great game tonight, but he seems to be more consistent. Like early in the season, he was streaky. We knew he could knock down threes at a good rate, but he wasn't doing it every game and, and he was wildly inconsistent, but I think he's starting to get it right at the, at the great time, the time you need him to going into the playoffs. So I got some confidence out of Danny green, putting up numbers. Um, and then lastly, Thibault, I think I wrote an article just last week about him being a starter. I don't think it's the most universal take. I think people like our starting lineup with Steph Curry in, but he showed that he was an elite defender. And I'm I'm just excited to see more time given to Embiid and Simmons or Thibault and Simmons on the court at the same time on defense when Ben gets back, because it, it's going to be scary for opposing teams. Now our new sponsor is none other than Mindful Health LLC, featuring Danette May's top superfood product from her Earth Echo Foods line, Cacao Bliss. Now, nothing feels better than being able to enjoy a rich, smooth, and creamy chocolate and knowing that you're doing something good for your body. What they do is they start with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, and guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it's friendly to paleo, gluten-free, keto, vegan, and vegetarian diets. For the last eight years, they've been a leader in the superfoods market, and they're proud to have served millions of customers worldwide. They're offering up to 15% off when you use the code MINUTE15. Again, that's MINUTE15. You can find their website at earthechofoods.com backslash minute media. And now back to the podcast. I think that's a good point, John, but I, I will say, I think the opposite side of that coin is Ben and Matisse are really hard to pair offensively. 
that's basically two guys that the defense can pretty comfortably ignore, especially in the playoffs. So I do think they have to be careful with that, especially when Joe's on the floor and you're trying to give him space in the middle. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I would just say that's my concern. Also, I mean, we made this case on the podcast last week. I know Uriah, I think, agrees with you on, on the Matisse point, but I mean, the Sixers are the number one seed, sort of, in the East right now. Like, just stick with what got you there is really more where, where my head's at. But. Well, well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna interject here, and Jonathan, I'm I don't know if you saw my article last week, but I wrote about how Thibel should be all defensive teams. I still believe that that's very true. That's not what, uh, but I don't think he's a starting player yet because that jump shot, like Chris said. If he's not consistent in hitting it at a high enough volume, it's hard to have him and Ben on the floor all the time. Uh, that being said, I wouldn't mind switching out Curry for Fork on Corkmoss hot take there, I know. Corkmoss has been playing very well with the starting five as of late. Whatever, he's healthy. He wasn't healthy tonight, but I mean, go look at the numbers. He's been phenomenal as a starter since the All-Star break, I believe, so... I have, to, and he's much more of a willing shooter than Curry has been as well. So I don't, I wouldn't hate the idea of having a longer guy who, who isn't that much. I mean, here's the downside: he's not a better defender than Seth Curry, but he's not a worse defender. They're both not good defenders, but Seth Curry does bring playmaking. But Corkmaz is a little bit longer on defense, so I guess that's a positive. Uh, Jonathan, your thoughts of switching out maybe Curry for Corkmaz? I, I mean, I don't hate the idea. You gave some good supporting points. Uh, I think that's like also where Chris said, I think that you like maybe stick with what got you there. I get that point with maybe not wanting to put Matisse in and, and same would go with Furcon, but I don't think it's the hottest take that uh, that you say that because I I could see Korkmaz getting in there. He's been playing extremely well and adding a little length while still keeping some offense isn't the worst thing, but I guess I guess at the moment I'm thinking Chris is probably right. Just keep it how it is and, and stick mm-hmm. with what got you there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand wanting – like Curry can be a bit frustrating at times with his hesitance from three-point range. But generally speaking, I think he's had a pretty solid season. I don't blame it all on him. I think he's dealt with a lot of injuries this year. That He's had a reoccurring ankle injury, the hip flexor recently. COVID-19 really took a toll. I mean – uh, he hasn't talked about it, but recently. But if a player like Jason Tatum's still recovering from it, you know, breathing wise, let's let's be let's be honest, it was probably affecting a guy like Seth Curry as well. So, you know, but the play has dropped off, and there was a reason that he's been not been a starter in the league up to this point. And maybe I, I don't know, George Hill or Cork Maz would be solid options in my opinion, unless Ben's not playing in the starting five. It's hard to have. Matisse in there too so uh, Matisse and Ben so but I mean I understand the positives there as well so it's yeah, definitely I, a I, would, topic. I would be remiss if we didn't mention possibly the greatest missed shot ever um, oh yeah, of, of course of course with eight tenths of a second left off the missed free throw from Chris Paul halfway in and out quite literally halfway in uh, I think we all saw the screenshot from Derek Bodner of the ball, like center of the hoop, at least halfway down, and somehow it bounced out. Uh, you know, the Sixers don't traditionally have the best luck with rims, but it was pretty brutal. 
But. So that's that's the okay. So we have the also, no, shot. He had scored like the last ten points for Philly leading up to that. He was the only reason they were even in the game to that point. Oh. A really can, incredible can we, effort from Joel in the board. Can we say that Joel Embiid's kind of a clutch player? Now? Can can he? Can we say that we can rely on him to close out games? Like we I think we rely on Jimmy Butler. No, I'm being serious though. He's hit fadeaway jumpers, you know, contested threes to get games into overtime. Like Chris said, he scored like the last ten points of that game and almost got the game tired to send it in, into overtime against the Suns with that mor- almost miraculous shot. I mean. Is Joel Embiid clutch? Okay, I think I think he can close. Go ahead, Chris. I want to hear you say. Oh no, I mean I I agree. I think I'm perfectly comfortable with with Joe closing games. I I don't think he's ever been like a terrible closer, but he he's definitely taken like the next step this season. He, he, Would I'm you say that he's a top top fifteen closer in the NBA right now? Yeah, I mean he's a top ten player most of those guys are top 15 closers frankly the best players are the best closers is traditionally how it goes so I, he's I, a closer but you have to do, you how have to pick the right shot i'm sorry can yeah. you say that again, jonathan like he's a closer but you have to pick the right shot so i think they were down five and they went to a timeout and before Korkmaz hit the three and they called a timeout they came back in and they drew i, I don't know if doc drew up this play i really hope not but it led to Embiid taking a like a fadeaway step back three, which that's not the shot. That's not what I want him closing. But I think he's a closer. You can get him in the post. He'll either get fouled or get you a bucket. But if you're drawing up plays for him to take step back threes, I think that's that's a questionable. But, but he's call. hit the the the, the, the issue. The pro- that's not the problem though, because he's hit those shots consistently enough for where I feel comfortable. If he wants to dribble in the mid range or you know take a you know spot up three at the end of games. I would feel comfortable him doing that. That's that's well, like that he's because he's done it this season, like yeah, multiple yeah, times. I, I I think the thing with Embiid is I think two of his big improvements. Obviously, one is that he's handling double teams much better. He's not perfect yet, but like in the fourth quarter and years past, defenses could basically collapse on him and he'd panic and he'd throw up a crappy shot or he'd go into black hole mode. And it'd be really tough to build a successful offense around that. That hasn't been the case. He's been a much more intelligent passer. He's been much better at just breaking out of double teams this season. So I think that's big. And then secondly is that Doc Rivers just knows how to use him much better than Brett did. Brett pretty much used Joel as like a post-up center or a spot-up shooter. And he's so good out of the middle, you know, playmaking, dribbling into those mid-range jumpers, just getting defenders out in space. He's been so good in that respect this season and Brett just didn't use him as frequently as he should have or could have in that space and I think that's been pretty key to Embiid taking the leap he has especially late in games so I I do agree Jonathan that you you want him taking the right shots but I I do think he has expanded his shot profile pretty successfully this season so I I agree with both Mm -hmm. of you basically Uh, uh, for sure and and I want to point out two other things one while we say he did good in double double teams this game, he did have eight turnovers. So there is that. It's, it's not perfect, like you said, Chris. But the other thing, and more importantly, I think how Doc is approaching Joel is how he wanted Kevin Garnett to play when he was on the Celtics. Because you, you, if you listen to Doc Rivers, uh, you know, podcasts, interviews, and all that, he will always say. 
I wish Kevin Garnett shot more. It was more assertive. That is what Joel is doing because Kevin Garnett was deadly in the mid-range. We all know this. Joel has really stepped up his mid-range game. And we saw it during his rookie year, but then, you know, Brett kind of didn't let him do it anymore. And now he's doing it again. And it's, you know, lethal. His his mid-range shot is lethal. He's one of the, like, 10 guys in the league that you would be like, okay, take as many mid-rangers as you want. That is Joel now. So that's, I think that's another reason why he's become such a good closer because good closers can hit those mid-range jumpers because that's an isolation play. All right. So now that we talked about those games, we are going to talk about a little bit more about Joel because, you know, why not? He's an MVP favorite, but... While he is playing as many games as possible, especially now that he's still trying to be the MVP, it is it is somewhat worrisome because he has recently said that his knee is not 100%. And here's the quote after the Suns game. Even tonight, I wasn't supposed to play. We We got a bunch of guys out, and it's my job to go out there and be a leader. Just push every night. I can't rest even if even if I'm hurt. That number one seed is important. So, guys, and I'll start with you, Jonathan. Do we agree that Joel Embiid's with agree or disagree with Embiid's remarks about playing as many games as possible, even when his knee isn't fully healthy? I uh, absolutely disagree. The number one scene is so important, and that's the that's the thing I'm going to take on his side in those comments, but it is not more important than your knee and your future health in the playoffs. And if you're going to come out here and say you're playing somewhat hurt for a regular season game to push to get the one seed, I understand how important that is. You don't want to have to play Brooklyn and Milwaukee or or like both of them as opposed to just one, but it, at what cost? Like at, you, you might not even be there if you're going to keep playing hurt. So I, I don't agree with it. Yeah, I, I agree, John. Um, I mean, like, I think Embiid, this isn't rookie year Embiid. I think he's really improved as far as just understanding his body and how far he can and can't push it. Um, so I'm I'm not terribly worried about him overexerting himself. But that said, you know, given his injury history, given the fact that he's already missed 18 games this season, like, there are more important things than the one seed. The Sixers can still very reasonably compete for the Eastern Conference crown from the number two seed or even the number three seed, um, especially if Brooklyn can't get their health together. Like, you know, you don't want to face Milwaukee in Brooklyn, but you're probably going to have to, if, if you can't beat Milwaukee, then, you know, it, it doesn't matter. So I don't think the one seed is important enough for Embiid to risk his health, which that statement sort of, I wouldn't say implied, but, you know, he, he, he does need to still be careful. I, I don't think he should be playing nights when he's not supposed to be playing. If there was, like, an advisement against him playing and he still played through it, I, I'm not really a big fan of that. So I, I do think he needs to be careful. Yeah, I, I agree with you guys. And the other thing I'm going to point out here is guys like LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Kevin Garnett. I mean, not Kevin Garnett, Kevin Durant. Sorry for the mix-up. Um, and, and even James Harden now, they are taking time with their injuries. They they have all missed a significant amount of time. 
but it's ra- it's better to miss it during this compact regular season versus the playoffs because we saw in that Toronto series two se- uh, postseasons ago, and a not healthy Embiid is not is not going to help you win it. Like you need to be a hundred percent, Joel. You know, I get that the MVP is important. I get that you know getting the number one seed is important, but that's you know your health is more important in the short term and long term. But that brings me to my second point, guys, because I just mentioned the MVP. How much do you think the MVP award, you know, the chance to get it, is driving Joel to to push through this injury and play on on it? I think that's absolutely it, Lucas. You're you're uh, so right with the. It's the MVP. I mean, we know that he wants it. He's pushed for saying that he should be Defensive Player of the Year conversation and also MVP and. Uh, the, I think the lowest um, percent of games played for an MVP award winner was Bill Walton with like 71%. And if Embiid finishes the season, the last 14 games, he'll be at 75. So I think he knows that in order to be legitimately in the conversation that he needs to play, everyone's talking about Jokic because of his offensive numbers and his assists. So by like Joel continuing to be out there and trying to stay healthy for the last 14 games. I think that's, that's what it is, whether he's going to publicly admit it or not, which I, I can guarantee not, but I mean, that's why he wants to play the last 14 games. Yeah. I I definitely think there's a certain motivation um, driving him at this point, both. I think the one seed, I think the Sixers probably much more than Brooklyn really do care about the one seed. And I do think Embiid very clearly, cares about MVP he's talking about it quite a bit but frankly he's probably not gonna win it so I I don't think that should be a a big motivator for him like like I I would much rather him rest a few extra games and be healthy going in than making some extra hard push for MVP Um, I think if anything the Sixers window is especially open this season with how Brooklyn's health is shaking out they might have all three guys back for the playoffs but even so the fact that they've only played seven games with their big three so far really does leave them a bit more vulnerable than I think they would be even next season with a full like like training camp and everything. So I, I really think the Sixers should prioritize just getting to the postseason healthy, like landing the plane, as Brett Brown would put it, just getting there in, 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 in one piece. But I, I certainly think MVP and the number one seed are pretty big motivating factors for Joel right now. Chris, why do you say he's not going to win it? Well, he, he's he's probably not. Jokic seems like he has a pretty big lead in the general. Like the general consensus seems to be favoring Jokic pretty heavily right now. I, I think Jokic has a pretty strong case, even without the games played argument. Um, so the fact that he hasn't missed any games just is kind of a cherry on top at that point. But. But the defensive numbers for Embiid are insane compared to you. I understand. Like, like Embiid has a case, and we've talked about it on the pod pretty much every week at this point. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't want to take away from Joel's case. I think he certainly has an argument. But, like, Jokic's offensive numbers, his efficiency, his aptitude as a playmaker, he, he does things that, even Joel's not doing this year on the offensive end. And I don't think he's as bad defensively as his reputation would suggest. Like he's top five in the league in steals. He's still doing some things on those ends. He's, he's nowhere near Joel. Of course, I'm not, I'm not trying to make the comparison, but I, I do think Jokic is a pretty heavy favorite at this point. 
So I, I don't think Joel should necessarily be, you know, risking life and limb for, for a, in a word he's kind of trailing. And you, your defense, if the Nuggets drop off because of the Murray injury, which it doesn't look like they are, so it looks like Jokic probably will win it. But if they do and they drop to like the six or the seven spot in the Western Conference rankings, then Joel can sneak back into the conversation because the Sixers are the still the number one team in the East right now because they own the tiebreaker with the Nets. But it, it is possible, uh, like, and Chris brought up some good points, but Joel also said, you know, the MVP is the best two-way player. Jokic is not a two. I mean, he's not a bad defender, but he's certainly not a – he's an average defender. For a center, and yes, he can okay. steal. Like, he can do steals. He he's a great, you know, putting his hands in the passing lanes. But could you imagine if Jokic tried to guard Drew Holiday on that one sequence? It it, it would have been embarrassing. He probably oh, would have came out of been his at sneakers. The basket, and and uh, Jokic wouldn't have even been at the foul line yet. Embiid is he's such a beast on defense. I just I got triggered, Jonathan, because Chris, me and you know, we went back and forth last pod. So all right. Go ahead, Chris. The best two way player argument, basketball is a two way game, right? So the player that makes the greatest impact overall is by definition the best two way player, because they are playing defense. There's a very real argument that Jokic has made the biggest impact of any player this season. So he would by definition be the best two way player, even if he isn't as good defensively as Joel. If the offensive difference is high enough, then he's still the best quote-unquote two-way player. So I, I, I don't... Embiid is the third highest scoring player, and he's the second highest scoring center of all time yeah, yeah. for points Look, per guys, game. Joel has been insane. I'm not trying to take away from Joel. And I think it would be a much more interesting argument if he hadn't missed 18 games. But Well, okay, let's, let's look at the... Okay, let's look at the amount of games that he actually missed so far this season. He 18. missed 10 because of injury. Ten be- only ten because of injury. The rest of Chris, Chris, Chris. Them. The re- the rest of them were because of COVID protocols, or yeah, because of COVID protocols. I so, think it does matter. Why I think it does matter what Lucas is saying. Like, why you missed it? I get you missed eight. Break. I understand. No, but Chris, in a season like this, you have to look at those because a lot of players did miss games because okay, of COVID. Okay, but guys, Jokic might be my pick if Embiid hadn't missed games. Like Jokic is okay. So you're just that's okay. wild. That's it's wild. Just, it's a neck and neck race either way. This is Jonathan. Games, so we have to go to the next guy. Like Jokic is right on that level on a very very Jonathan, good team in a much better conference. So to be fair, Jonathan, me and Chris have had. Me and Jonathan, to be fair, me and Chris have had plenty of arguments where he has been more of a pro Jokic guy in general versus me. So I'm not surprised to hear this from him. Yeah, I don't want to get hung up hung up on it too much, but I'm I, I like if Embiid played all the games, it would to me like it's unquestionable. That's like not even being biased. Like he's the best player, most valuable player. But I, I agree. Yeah. But uh, I right. think well, we, we'll, we need to probably get off the the Joel yeah. conversation. We'll have to we'll have to agree to disagree on that and move on to talk a bit about Shake, who has been a bit of a dumpster fire lately. Uh, turned it around a little bit in the Milwaukee game. Had some pretty decent numbers, but generally speaking, for pretty long stretches this season, what we've gotten out of Shake hasn't been what we expected going into the season. 
There's a lot of talk about him maybe being sick man of the year and taking the next step and being what Markel couldn't and all that. And he hasn't been very good. So, uh, John, what, what do you think's going on with Shake lately? Uh, outside of tonight, I think he's having trouble adapting to his role. I mean, like you said, there was high expectations coming into this season. And, and I was even writing about at, at the trade deadline, like I thought he was the point guard that the Sixers were trying to get in the market with Kyle Lowry or whoever they wanted to bring in. And then they go get George Hill. And I mean, George Hill's going to get his minutes. Like he, George Hill is the backup point guard. And I think that kind of affects shake. And then the other minutes that might be given out to guards potentially in the playoffs, like Furkan is, as we discussed, he's ball in Matisse is you need his defense in the playoffs. So I think shake maybe subconsciously or maybe consciously is realizing that his role on the team is kind of disappearing and his, his minutes are going to fall because of the acquisition mainly of George Hill. So I think that kind of got to him because that's, that seems to be what kicked off his, his kind of struggles. So I don't know if you guys remember the last, the last podcast that I was on, cause I wasn't on the most recent one. I was on the one before that, but what did I tell you guys? that was going to happen with Shake Milton before he really started going off. I told you guys that when George Hill was going to start being integrated into the rotation, he was going to struggle because he wasn't going to have the ball in his hands as much. I I, I told you guys that that was going to happen. But he, I, like, I, 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 he wasn't I very guys. before Hill started playing either. Okay, let's let's. I you know what I pulled up. I pulled up his game logs. So this month, while his scoring is down overall, he's actually shooting the best from the three point line this season at forty three percent. So there's that. So that's a positive. And even during even during that three game stretch against the the Clippers, the Golden State Warriors, and the Suns, he still hit four. Of 10 three-pointers. He still still shot 40% from the three-point line. Yes, his field goal percentage overall was bad, but I told you guys his three-point percentage was going to jump up, and it's starting to jump up now that the, he's starting to change his roles a little bit. And yes, overall, the month has been good to him way before George got here. I'm not denying that, so, but... Yeah, I, I want to go ahead, Chris. off that point because I think... I mean, part of me is kind of concerned that Shake's quasi-explosion the second half of last season was a bit fluky and that he's just not that good of a shooter. But part of what made Shake so good last year was he was just an insane shot maker. Shots that he's been short-arming a lot this season and just hasn't looked as comfortable shooting the ball from three-point range you mentioned. He's shooting on the season 33.7% from deep, whereas Mm -hmm. last year he was up around 40%. Well, well, over 40% at 43 I think it was 43 He's t- yeah. almost 10% points lower from three-point range this season. If he's not hitting those crazy difficult shots and just lighting it up from the three-point line, his value drops off pretty considerably. He's not terribly talented as a passer. He's a bit slow for a guard who handles the ball as much as he does. He's not a good defender. So when he's short-arming shots and playing with the confidence of a scorer who makes shots that he's not making and is taking actively bad shots, then he kind of drags the offense down. Like, maybe Shake just isn't as good as we thought he was. I mean, that that could very well... You know, Chris, I I had the same thoughts. I did. 
But I, you know, part of it, like I said, I think part of it was the fact that, you know, he was playing a little bit more. He wasn't the primary point guard off the bench for most of last season. It was either Neto or, well, actually primarily just Neto, because let's be real, uh, Brown did not give my boy Trey Burke any love at all. But um, that being said, no, I think, you know, the Bucks game, that's a great and, and did you notice the difference between the the you know the Clippers the War Warriors and Suns game versus the Bucks game? Is that George Hill wasn't uh, you know I think actually no George Hill made his debut with the Suns so the last, the other two games don't matter but you know Shake Milton had the ball in his hands primarily as the primary but you know option in the second unit again. Overall, I think the issue, like I said, I think the issue is that he's having, you know, mentally he's he's trying to adjust to this new role playing off the ball more. And I think he'll get there. And I, I mean, we're already starting to see the dividends of his three point shooting. But is it concern? I'm not I'm not too concerned about it right now, though. Yeah, I, I, I mean, think it's just the I think it's just the transition of roles. And I think it'll be OK in the long term. I don't know, Jonathan, if he's going to lose his minutes to Corkmaz and Hill, I think, uh, I I mean, I think, I'm not sure what's going to happen, be honest. We'll have to see how the rest of the regular season plays out, because Corkmaz does get hot, and then he gets cold, so we'll have to see. But Yeah, I mean, that kind of segues into the question I was going to ask, is like, how scared are we of, of him losing minutes? Like, Corkmaz is a better shooter, Hill is a much better defender and playmaker, Maxi has all of a sudden kind of burst back onto the scene and been really effective these past few games. Mm-hmm. Doc has made a point that we're going to see a lot more of these guard-heavy lineups now that Hill's back once the team is healthy. I'm hoping this is the end of the Mike Scott era because it's really time for it's that painful. to be the case. It's, it's, I mean, Scott was sort of decent tonight against Milwaukee, like 11 points, three or five. Yeah, stop playing him. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think Shake is going to drop out of the rotation entirely, but he hasn't been as good as Korkmaz, or he's not as good as Hill. He hasn't been as good as Furkan for long stretches this season. Thibault's going to be more important defensively in certain clutch time situations. Like I think there's a real chance that Shake kind of slips out of slips, you know, to the periphery at least. I think that's I, a real concern. I think you're right, I, but I, I realistically, what you you go no more than nine in the playoffs and deep and maybe even eight. And the three bench players you automatically think of, it's got to be Dwight, George Hill, and Matisse, as you said, for his defense. So if you're stretching to nine players in the playoffs, it's probably going to be Furkan. I I mean, I don't see Shake getting into the playoff lineup if things stay as is. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's a real conversation. Like Lucas said, we still have about a month of basketball left, so – Shake could get hot again. Doc has expressed pretty remarkable confidence in Shake all season ever since he led up the Clippers last season. I think Doc's got kind of a thing for him, but we'll we'll see what happens. You know, I, I Shake's play like Maxi has outplayed him pretty thoroughly these past few games, so I definitely think it's a concern. I'm not exactly sure that we will see a bench rotation of eight or nine because. Doc Rivers, in the past, in some seasons, have gone 10 deep in the playoff. He did with that 08 Boston team, the Clippers team two years ago. He's gone 10 deep in that bench rotation if he trusts that, if he trusts his bench. Um, So it's totally possible that we could see 10 players. I don't think that we would. 
it, it might be situational on that ninth guy. It could be some nights he feels like maybe Shake would have a better matchup against a certain bench unit, or maybe Corkmaz would. Um, I, I do think I do think that's, that, a good, that's a good point, Lucas, because like situationally, we talked about the stretch bigs kind of killing Philly tonight. Like, do we think Dwight is a great matchup against Milwaukee if we're matching Joel's minutes to Giannis's? Like, if Dwight's out there guarding PJ Tucker or, or Brooke Lopez. That's going to be a, a, a tough matchup for him. So maybe you go small. You throw Ben in at the five or something like that. So I, I do think Dwight is going to be really interesting to watch in the playoffs. We saw it even with L.A. where he was really valuable in the Denver series and then not so valuable in other series. So I do Yeah, think he barely played in that Houston series. Yeah. yeah so he, think- and Houston had P.J. Tucker as their center. So Yeah. So yeah. I do think <laughs> Go ahead, John. If they're going P.J. Tucker, your boy Mike Scott might be getting playing time. I, I would certainly hope not. Uh, I think I that's much more possible not. than we would like to think it is. I, I think that's uh, a very uh, real that's, possibility, unfortunately. Chris, are you, try, are you trying to make me get a headache during the podcast? <laughs> no, I'm joking, of course. But um, No, I mean, yeah, we could see Ben at the five. I mean, Doc has experimented with it this season. I mixed results but it could happen again you know now we're, we can see the four guard lineup with you know either joel or ben or dwight at, at center and i think that wouldn't be a bad look for sure i mean you could have matisse and or cork defend opposing fours because they both have the length to do it and you know you guys brought up maxi i mean gosh and Chris, I saw your tweet, and I agreed with you that yeah, Maxi next year could be coming for Shake's minutes if Shake doesn't get his game back in shape. Because Maxi, I mean, he's a jump. He's his jump shot is getting better. His his uh his playmaking is taking steps in the right direction. He needs to be a little bit smarter and try to create more contact when he drives. You know, taking smarter shots and creating more contact, but. I think we've seen some improvement from Maxi this season. Is that is that so crazy to believe after that rough stretch for the last like month or so? We're starting to see him pick it back up and his play is showing signs of improvement. No, I mean he's he's playing great. And he like you said, he needs to get more contact when he goes to the rim, but his ability to get to the rim and, and his proclivity to like drive pretty frequently is is refreshing. I mean, that's a good backcourt kind of player that we could definitely use. And I I think he's been putting in a lot of work behind the scenes. I think that he's probably, he's working his butt off in practice. And and, and that's when he gets those few minutes, it shows that he's, you're right. He's outperforming shake and he's showing his work when he does get minutes and he just keeps grinding. Yeah. I mean, like if Maxi is going to take four or five threes a game, like two or four against the Bucks tonight, he's pretty much instantly far more valuable than Shake. He puts pressure on the defense in a way Shake can't. Like, the Sixers really benefit from his speed, and if he's even a passable shooter alongside of that, not to mention his defense, which has been much better these past few games than it was early in the season, then I think he's, like, flat-out better than, than Shake, frankly. So if, if not this season, I, I definitely think next season we could see a pretty big uptick in playing time for, for Tyrese. Is it a hot take to say that I think that Corkmaz is supplanted Shake as the team's de facto sixth man, or is that is it too soon to say that? It's George Hill. 
I mean, I don't. I think it's pretty clear that George Hill. I think it's George Hill as well. Mm. Well, I mean, okay. I was thinking prior to George Hill's debut, which literally happened last night. But um, I think Cork Moss has a better chance of going off on any given night more than Sheik. Is that fair to say at this point? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. All right. Okay. So before we move on, first off, I want to also, before we get to the next subject, segue. Did you guys see that dunk contest between Dwight and Rajon Tucker? Because it's on Twitter. If you guys, you guys need to check it out, go to my, I retweeted it so you can go to my Twitter page. It is Lucas Johnson NBA. It's a video of Dwight and Rajon Tucker dunking. Rajon Tucker is the Sixers two-way wing, uh, two-way contract wing, and it is fantastic. Tucker should be in the slam dunk next year. I saw it. Um, I saw it, Lucas. It was pretty out of this world. Yeah, he should be in the dunk contest. NBA, listen up. Okay, segue over. Now we're getting into the our m- final main topic here, and that is thoughts on Ben Simmons and Matisse Leibel as a defensive tandem. So here's an interesting stat. I mean, okay, sorry, oh. go ahead. No, you're good. I just I just want to give credit to Uriah for working Matisse into the syllabus pretty consistently. I, I really respect What? What? It's deserved. It's deserved. Like every week. It's, 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 it's really, deserved, though, Chris, because, it, it, it's like, deserved. oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm just joking. It, it, credit to you, though. There is no bias over I here, I mean, gentlemen. we don't, Chris, we don't. Yeah, yeah, we do. I was about to say we don't give you grief for talking about you know beatball Paul, but then oh, I realized, yeah. of course we do. So, yeah, yeah but we no, have no mind. reason to talk about beatball Paul, so that's why he never makes the agenda. Yeah, Matisse is, <laughs> is Matisse should be on the agenda. Matisse deserves to be on oh, the agenda. I agree. I agree. No, hundred percent. It was a joke. If you agree, then why are you mentioning it? Because <laughs> he likes the. Because we like poking the bear. We like poke, like we like teasing each other on here. Because we all have that one player that we love. I love Trey Burke, even though he's not on the Sixers anymore. Chris loves Bball Paul, and you love Matisse. Okay, I'm with you, Uriah. Can we talk about Poku? Jonathan knows. No, 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 Chris. No Poku tonight. <laughs> no Poku tonight. Please. We can talk about Pikachu. Oh my gosh! Please don't talk about Pokemon. I I dealt with enough of that this past week with my students. I'm good. I'm good for a while. All right, guys. Let's let's get back. All right. On track. All right. Okay. So anyway, here's the defensive tandem stats. So players that are shooting 38% when are okay. Sorry. Players are shooting 38% when guarded by Thibault this season. The best mark by any defender who has defended 300 plus shots. Players are shooting 41% when guarded by a Ben Simmons this season. So guys, when they play together, are they the best defensive backcourt in the entire NBA? Yes. I feel like we should reread that stat for Chris, though, just so he... 38% when guarded by Thibault? That's, mm-hmm. I think, unbiasedly, it's the best defensive backcourt. I, I, I would take... I would let anyone name any backcourt you want to, but... I I would argue you till the end. What did I do? I, I was gonna say yes too. I don't, I don't <laughs> he sounds so guilty. He I'm sounds the so guilty. Ben Simmons defender on this podcast. Okay, I, I don't want to. I don't want to hear it. Um, 
but yeah, I, of course. I, I mean, I think it's pretty hands down. Um, yeah, you, you'll get no argument from me. Like, there are other pretty compelling backcourts around the league, but I don't think anyone can quite do what they do. So, like, I mean, the real argument is, do we want to call them a backcourt? But if we are, <laughs> then it's pretty clear. Okay. I I will say this. I think this is the best defensive backcourt. And this is my hot take for this subject. I think this is the best defensive backcourt since Chauncey Billups and Rip Hamilton. Uriah, you you were sure. you were present and more aware yeah. than young me and you know younger Chris and Jonathan. So thoughts on this? I don't, I don't think I don't think Rip was that great of a defender and Chauncey. He was he was a decent defender. They didn't produce a lot of steals or deflections. They were very good at staying in front of their men, and they were well. At least Billups was strong. He could hold his own, and I think Rip benefited from having Rasheed Wallace and Ben Wallace down down low. So uh, I would pick defensively. I would pick Ben and Matisse. Okay, so who would you say it has been a better duo prior to these guys in the past? That's tough. I, I'd have to, I'd have to go back in my archives. Would it archives. be before two thousand? Would it be any duo since since the two thousand season? Mm, wow. Because I can't. I can think of individual like guards like Bruce Brown, maybe. I mean, not Bruce Brown. Bruce, Bruce Bowen. Bowen. Yeah, yeah. That's the guy that I think of. Tony Allen, maybe. But duos. How about Kawhi and Danny Green? When they were in I mean, San Antonio, they were maybe? more wings than point guard and shooting guard. I mean, but yeah, yeah I guess well, like, no. We're talking thing. defense, like, ben though. Is mostly guarding wings. Like if we're yeah. gonna use that argument, Ben and Kawhi pretty much handled the same assignments. Ben is a bit more versatile, but like as far as main assignments go, Ben and Kawhi are guarding the same people. But like, okay, here's the thing: so, like Danny Green just spoke, and, and we don't. I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically he was saying, "Oh, Matisse, he's better than I was in my prime." Like, way better than I was in my prime. I mean, yeah, like, Tybalt's, like, to your point, Lucas, it probably deserves an all-defense nom, and he's playing, like, 19 minutes a game. Like Tybalt's, Thank you for bringing that up without me having to, so thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that. But, yeah, I think he does. I think he – I think there's – there are not, you know, five well, – how many guards get to all-defensive four – I think it's fair to say that Does he's he a top four defense. As a guard? I like, would imagine so. We have Shake, Furkan, Hill. Like, is he a forward? Like, like I guess you can like, say that he plays forward. That's his role. I guess you could so, say, yeah, yeah I guess you like, could say he's a small forward. The main argument here is they're not a backcourt. Because if you're going to call them a backcourt, then I, I think it's a pretty definitive yes. Well, okay, Lucas. let's just say tandem. I would say Lucas from Detroit. I would say Tayshawn Prince and Chauncey Billups. I would, oh, okay. I would a, go. I would say I, that. That that's a more yeah. fair but comparison. Like, like, okay. like Prince isn't a backcourt player, so it just depends on how we're defining the, the conversation. Maybe Gary Payton uh, and Nate McMillan. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, like Mike Conley and Tony Allen maybe. were pretty good. Like there, Mike Conley, yeah. There, there are some that are in the conversation, but Matisse and Ben are, are pretty hard, high up there. Who was the small forward for that grit and grind team? Because they got rid of Rudy Gay, and who who took his place? I forget. I'm not sure. I know Tayshawn was in there at the end of his career, but that wasn't the main guy. 
Who was it? it? Okay, well, obviously it wasn't. Watch it be somebody super important, but I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I think it's fair to say that they're the best perimeter defending duo in the in the. Let's not say backcourt, but let's just say per, perimeter defenders in the league. Yes, they're the best duo. Yeah. Perimeter I, defenders. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, because I mean, you got you get. I'm not gonna lie, because like Paul George and Kawhi aren't on the same level of defenders they were earlier in their career. They that's not their focus anymore. I'm sure they could tap into it if they wanted to, but yeah. they're not doing like, it on I night. They'd, they'd probably be number two on the list. I, I yeah. don't. They got Pat Bev too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like I don't. I can't come up with every duo off the top of the dome, but. The Kawhi and Paul George is probably number two. Yeah. So, guys, how important is this when it comes to the playoffs? I think you Pretty win important. with defense. Yeah, it's very important. Like Chris just said, I think I think you win with defense. I, I totally get the spacing issue with Embiid if you put Matisse and Ben on the floor at the same time. But at, at, on the other hand, like, I think, Lucas, you said it earlier, like Matisse is an all-NBA defensive player, and that would be three on the court at the same time with Embiid and Simmons, who's defensive player of the year. That's unheard of. Like that defense is locked down. Defense wins championships. So So do you think that duo will actually cause like the Nets, for example, like significant issues offensively? Enough, right? I mean, you're not going to stop them, but – yeah. Yeah. Like, like, if the Nets are healthy and they're clicking on all cylinders, none of it really matters. But if the Nets are just a little bit off, you know, off kilter for whatever reason, like they, if they're missing the one star, they haven't played together at all. That being the reason. Yeah. Then yeah, yeah. putting Ben Simmons and Matisse Thibel on Harden and Irving, or whatever, and or, is, is going to give court. them some. Yeah. Some problems. Um, yeah, yeah. Whoever's not healthy, whoever yeah. is healthy. George Hill and yeah. Danny Green can defend their tails off too. You got Joel in the middle. Like that team's going to give other teams Danny, problems. Yes. Exactly. So, Daryl Morey said it pretty plainly. I, I don't remember where the interview was, but like he compared them the... to Doc's Boston team, where this team isn't going to win on offense. They're just not good enough. Um, Brooklyn and Milwaukee are much better offensive teams. But the Sixers have one of the most intimidating defenses we've really ever seen in modern basketball. They have the potential to be that at least, even if they aren't statistically at this moment. So that's how they're going to win. The interview with the, the the interview was was with John Clark of NBC. Yeah, sorry, sorry for the mix-up, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that this team is built to win a championship on defense and a grinded out thing which goes against the mold of today's NBA but it's possible for it to happen I mean the Lakers were a top defensive team last year so it's possible and I'm at the point now that if we get past the Nets uh, you know I feel comfortable about beating we have a legit shot of beating anybody from the West including a healthy LeBron AD team yeah I mean I think the Sixers match up pretty well with the Lakers like I'm not going to bet against LeBron I'm not mm-hmm. of course not that, the Sixers <laughs> match up pretty favorably with a lot of teams um, pretty much based on their defensive versatility like they there aren't too many teams that are just going to beat the Sixers 
in every respect when they're clicking on all cylinders. If they're playing like they were tonight, where their legs aren't on them and they can't, like, rotate, then we'll talk about it. But that's not going to be the case in the playoffs. So we'll, we'll just have to see. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris. I think it's time for you to play us out, man. All right. Um, well, John, thanks as always for, for coming on the pod. You've, as Lucas said, been our most frequent guest, so we really appreciate it. And we hope to have you back on soon. If there's any place you want to have the uh, the listeners follow you on social media, you know, of course, they can read your work on thesixersense.com, which we would highly recommend. But yeah, just, just give them a place where they can follow you if you want to. Yeah, th- I, thanks, guys. I mean, I always love coming on and talking Sixers with you, but uh, you can find my stuff on, yeah, go to the Sixers Sense, search Jonathan Guy. But I got some new content up there, so I, I appreciate all the support. All right, and to all our, our listeners, as always, we really appreciate you giving us the time of week to talk Sixers. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple or Omni, you know, leave us a review, five stars, leave a comment if you can. It would really help us out. And we really appreciate any feedback. We will certainly take into account. And just stay tuned for some exciting guests and some exciting topics in the near future. The playoffs are under a month away, so more than enough to be excited about with this team and and with this podcast so just stay tuned everyone and we'll be back early next week